Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer. And we are recording once again in the cone of uncertainty. <laughs> there's another hurricane heading my way. One more October surprise, a Halloween season coming in, another spooky jump scare. Sixth time this year, kind of over it, over bringing my plants inside and outside, over and over again in a vicious cycle. How are you doing out there in Texas where there are no hurricanes? Yeah, I mean, Texas does get hurricanes, but yeah, they do not come where I am. Uh, the weather is very nice. Our pool finally reopened, but of course, only for about three weeks before it got too cold to swim. So I'm once again <laughs> left looking at it longingly while the days are almost warm enough, but not quite, which is a bummer. But, you know, there's a lot of bad news in the world and some good news, too. So I'm not that <laughs> upset about it. Are you feeling the spooky season vibes? I know the, the summer ended with the pool closing, I'm guessing. So are you feeling the Halloween spirit yet? Or is that still coming on slowly? You know, some years I just don't really get into it. This year, I'm starting to feel a little more holly jolly just in the past few days. So we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously, there's not going to be a Halloween as we know it. Yeah. Which is a bummer because, you know, I got a new bathrobe this year and I was already planning all of the different ways that I could turn that into a very lazy Halloween costume as like Arthur <laughs> Dent. It's blue. So I was also thinking about doing like some paper stars and going as like the Sorcerer's Apprentice or whatever. But, you know, uh, live and learn. Well, okay. There's not going to be any parties or like candy distribution, but I feel like you can cram in maybe even more horror movies than usual this year. Because there's really nothing else to do. This is true. This is true. Have you been watching horror movies? Have you been watching other stuff? I have been watching mostly other things. My erstwhile roommate, who has been referred to in many of my print reviews, mostly as like an introduction to like, how did we end up picking this movie, which was either great or horrible? He and his housemates that he lives with now have been going through like a Keanu sense. So it was with them that I synced up and watched both Spree and I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which we talked about previously. And we've been syncing up and then, you know, video chatting afterwards about a couple of Keanu movies that we saw recently. Most recently, uh, he and I watched Point Break, which I guess I had actually never seen all the way through. Like I had seen it probably like three or four times in disparate pieces across various different television broadcasts. But there's a lot of Keanu on uh, HBO Max right now. So watch that had like a conversation about Catherine Bigelow's weird cop thing. Some time in the past year, you had us watch for the movie of the month discussion, um, Strange Days, uh, starring Angela Bassett and some other people, I guess. Um, <laughs> and before that, uh, when he and I still lived together, we independently watched Blue Steel, which neither... I like that one. Ooh, really? Okay. What's uh, What draws you to it? Um, it's a sleazy, erotic thriller with that extra layer of like police violence. Um, but it is like her most... I don't want to say pro cop because there's a lot of like fucked up things that happen in that movie, but it, it is the one that's like the least critical, I think, towards the police as an institution. Yeah. The other ones like Detroit or like Strange Days, those will present cops as like 
corrupt and fucked up, but there's like higher ups that put a stop to it, you know? Yeah. Like, the institution isn't evil. It's like individual cops. Yeah. That really comes through in Point Break also. True. and But I think in Blue Steel, like, even though it is kind of like the cops are a little heroic in that one, she has this like kind of bloodlust, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as like the cop character, like mm-hmm. she's kind of like turned on and drawn to the violence and it like brings out this like ugly side of her. So there's still a little bit of like a critical eye to it, but really that's just me making an excuse for me liking it as like a sleazy erotic thriller with her in it. Fair enough. It's There is always in Catherine Bigelow's work kind of like cops, like you said, are individually corrupt but there's always a good cop who fixes it whether it be like the commissioner who shows up at the end of strange days or to an extent curtis herself and blue steel that i find really strange and point break everybody is making such a meal out of every single line (laughs) Uh, especially the cops and they're all so angry and so belligerent and so confrontational it seems like everyone is coming down from like a Coke hangover because they're just so easily set off at a moment's notice. It's like a cast full of Buseys, even though there's only one really. I don't know. (laughs) But we also watched River's Edge, uh, which you and I were talking (laughs) earlier off mic about uh, my favorite movie, Heathers. And you were talking about how movies like Jawbreaker and Sugar and Spice are kind of chasing the Heathers high. Yeah, they're trying to do that like high school cruelty that's like a little flippant and callous, but it's a hard tonal balance to strike. And they often go either like too mean or like not mean enough, even though I love all those movies. Yeah, they are all great. I I generally think of Heather's uh, Jawbreaker and Mean Girls forming a spiritual trilogy, but you've also got Sugar and Spice in there. For some people, they consider Clueless to be part of that legacy, which I don't really see it. Yeah, it's a little too nice. But if you were to counterbalance like the niceness of Clueless, you have the real mean-spirited nature of River's Edge. Have you ever seen it or even heard of it? Because I had Crispin Glover in that. Yes. Okay, I've seen the scene of Crispin Glover overacting in a car, and it made me really want to watch it, but I've never actually seen the film. That narrows it down, not at all. And to be honest, okay. he is. <laughs> there are many scenes in which Crispin Glover, who's the only one who's doing like a real, like California accent, like the whole movie, you are questioning: Is Crispin Glover a terrible actor or the greatest actor in this film? where he is really, (laughs) truly committed to this role. And it really, the character itself is is really horrifying. But it also is about murder in a small town that the teenagers are aware of. And it becomes kind of this look at like the banality of like the disaffection of modern living for, you know, the 80s. It was based on like, it was made in 86. It was based on a, an actual murder that had happened in 1981. And it was pretty well received in its time, but has mostly faded into the background. But the sort of casual indifference of 
these teenagers to a murder in their midst and like their lack of any desire to really like make it known to the authorities at least initially and the way that these like young men these young adult men like crispin glover especially like really disregard with like a carelessness and a cruel casualness the death of one of their female classmates at the hands of their like male classmate it's pretty harrowing and it just happened to be something that i watched right before the announcement of the sentencing or the day before the sentencing of joel guy i'm not sure if you're up on that news story oh i've been following that story yeah i also have been following it since 2016 because it was my it was like the first day i went back to work after thanksgiving and one of my you know fellow alumni of the louisiana school sent me a text message that just said did you go to school at the same time as joel guy and i was like yeah why and then she just sent me the link to the advocate the baton rouge newspaper about his arrest and i knew him fairly well and i guess we have already discussed this uh because when we saw each other in september of last year I was in town for the wedding celebration of someone who had been his roommate at boarding school, who you also know. I guess we, you know, we'll yeah. we'll keep all those details private. But the fact that like people with whom we are fairly well associated are also like tangentially connected to this like truly harrowing and horrific murder really made it strike home in a way that I, I think made it feel a little bit more real, despite the fact that it being based on a true story, it didn't really feel that intimate to me, removed by this distance of like, you know, 35 years since it was filmed. I don't know, it just hit really hard the next day when that sentencing finally came down, because it's been nearly four years since it happened. It was a pretty open and shut case, but I guess justice moves slow sometimes. I feel like I've heard more details recently just about like the people that were left behind yeah. after the violence and like maybe even how it was planned and executed. And yeah, if that was in a movie, like the vile way that this person murdered their parents, I don't know that I could watch such a film. Like the gruesomeness of it is like so gross. It is truly harrowing. But, I mean, we do watch a lot of movies where, like, equally fucked up shit happens. That's, like, a way of, like, dealing with mortality and, like, the fact that we're all going to die someday, whether or not it's by the hands of a serial killer, uh, is questionable. (laughs) It's unlikely. But I could see how, like, it's easier to do that in the abstract if you're not thinking of a specific murder and you're just thinking of, like, death in general. (sighs) Yeah. I, uh, yeah. What, What have you been watching? Oh, geez. Man, it's hard to follow up that, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I should have told you, that, you know, I shouldn't have led with that. I'm sorry. But <laughs> well, for my part, I've been watching as like kind of a Halloween project. I've been going through a stack of unwatched horror Blu-rays and DVDs that I've gathered over time. Um, and because we're talking about a Jalo film on the episode today, I watched the two Jalos that have just been sitting in my stack um, since I purchased them. One of them, I think, would be an example of the genre at its, like, 
most like loosey goosey, like incoherent, but still fun to watch, which was the corruption of Chris Miller in 1973. Have you seen that one? No, it's a Spanish film. So I don't even know if technically it is a Jalo, but it looks and acts like one. It's got that like seventies Euro horror vibe to it. And it's also like a Jalo in the sense that um, it doesn't hold up to a minute's scrutiny. <laughs> like when they reveal who the killer is, you're like, no, that that's not right. And then I go back and like watch the scenes where there's like evidence of like who did the killings. And it's like, yeah, that's impossible. Right. And that's fine. Like the whole point of like Jalo films is that they're so over stylized that like the substance doesn't really matter for the most part. I mean, the good ones do both, but they're kind of a rare breed. This one's really fun, though. It's It's got Gene Seberg of Breathless fame and FBI Watchless fame as well. Uh, she lives in a house um, with her stepdaughter, who the two women have been, like, left behind by this man, like the stepdaughter's father, obviously, and her, her husband. He just, like, left the scene. He's kind of like a jewel thief who, like, we never get to see in the movie. And as revenge, she decides to gaslight the stepdaughter and to seduce her into like a lesbian relationship so it's got kind of this like almost whatever happened to baby jane quality to it almost but with two like way younger people like there's almost like this psycho dynamic between the two of them but they're like half the age of what those characters should be uh-huh. and then men start entering their like sphere and it's unclear whether the man that comes into the house and like joins basically what becomes like a bisexual harem that gene seberg's running is the killer of women around town or if it's one of the two women in the house who are obviously like in a dangerously precarious mental state as well. And the answer to that mystery is like super frustrating and illogical. And like the more you think about it, the more like frustrating it gets (laughs) days after you've seen the film. But it's also like got all the things you want out of a Jalo. It's like super sleazy and looks great. And there's really like, just strange visuals in the kills. Like the very first murder in the cold open, the killer is dressed like Charlie Chaplin, but with prosthetic makeup on. So it's kind of like a zombified Jar- Charlie Chaplin stabbing someone to death. Huh. It's like, where else are you going to see something like that? I can't, I can't think of a single place. Honestly, like the best version of that film might've been like a slasher where the killer is always dressed like Charlie Chaplin. That would have been a, a singular work that I, I would be recommending left and right. Somebody called De Palma right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something right up his alley. The other one I watched, though, was from 1971. It's called Short Night of Glass Dolls. Have you seen that one? No, but I am already in love with this title. I think this is like the rare exception. This is like an actual Jalo film. It is a Italian murder mystery. But I think it's like an example of when the genre is like firing on all cylinders. Like it's very thoughtfully considered and like well paced. And the mystery is actually pretty involving. It starts with a guy who's like paralyzed on a table in a morgue. He's getting prepared to be buried, but he can like see and feel and hear. He just can't react in any way. And he appears to be dead to the people who are like preparing his body. Okay. And he's not sure how he got there. And then through flashbacks, he's sort of like piecing together the events that led him there. So he's basically like solving his own murder in real time. But, you know, there's still like flashy violence and like these like weird sex cults and vast conspiracy networks. It's set in like Cold War era Prague, too. And there's a lot of like great cinematography around the city. 
It's got a Neo Morricone score too, which is great. It, it reminded me most of the Psychic in that it's like kind of a gentler, kind of level-headed version of Jalo that you don't get to see very often. Right. And yeah, if you're a fan of this genre at all, I'd I'd recommend checking it out just because it is like one of the like gems that feels like it hasn't been canonized yet somehow. That's such a recurring fear that pops up in different horror or at least horror adjacent like genres and pieces of work the buried alive yeah or the the preparation for the autopsy right there's an alfred hitchcock presents episode with joseph cotton in it that has that same sort of premise it's the internal monologue of a man who is paralyzed after a car accident and he's basically sitting in a morgue begging his body to react in such a way that he can demonstrate to the coroner that he is not dead. And there's also a Stephen King short story in the Everything's Eventual collection, uh, which has a similar premise. It's a, it's it's more complicated, of course, because it's Stephen King, so it's a little bit more belabored. It has a weird ending. And I actually was listening to that one in like an audiobook version and was getting annoyed by the premise and how similar it was to the Joseph Cotton Hitchcock episode. And then it is called out by name in that short story. So I was like, Oh, I was mollified, but one of the letterbox people I follow um, also called this a ripoff of that exact Hitchcock episode. Really? So you're not alone in <laughs> your mind going there. Huh? All right. This is so distinct stylistically too, like, Jalo style that I can't see it being like completely worthless if you've already seen that premise though. I I mean I know this is a tangent but you lo- you got to love a Jalo title like that. Short Night of Glass Dolls. Short Night of so Glass poetic. Dolls. There there's some like The House with the Laughing Windows is one that I enjoy as like the the poetry of the title but I think the one that's best is um Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key which also has a great poster. Yeah, it's a little bit depressing to watch the movie and realize it's just yet another adaptation of like Poe's black cat story, or yeah. maybe that's just me, but I had, I, I watched that one right at the end of doing that original Argento project. Uh, and I had just seen Argento's version of the black cat story in the two evil eyes anthology that he had done. And I don't know what it is, but those Jalo directors, they, they loved Poe. They adored him to the point where it's like, yeah, I get it. But also sometimes you kind of want to break from it almost. But yeah, I think just in general, though, like the genre consistently has great titles and great posters. And then the curse is like the movies having to live up to that, which they do maybe 50% of the time. 50 is generous, but yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> sometimes they do. And sometimes they really just don't. Mommy told me something a little girl should know. It's all about the devil and I've learned to hate him so. She said he causes trouble when you let him in the room. He will never, ever leave you if your heart is filled with gloom. So let the sun shine in, face it with a grin. Smilers never lose, and frowners never win. So let the sun shine in, 
So I don't know if this would surprise you or not, but we talk about Jalo on this podcast a lot. Tell surprise. We've never done a Jalo episode though. That's the surprising part. We talk about it a lot, but we've never actually like talked about a single movie in the genre. We usually talk about it as like an aesthetic signifier and not like an actual point of discussion. It's definitely something that's near and dear to both of our hearts. And it is, I, I guess I would say it's surprising that it's taken that long to get to it, but I did get my Star Trek in there first. So the, it was an, it was <laughs> inevitable, but it, it is shocking that we're on our fifth of these and it took this long to get here. I meant like in the history of the podcast general, like I've been doing this show for four years and neither Brittany nor James or myself have picked a Jalo film once as really? like an anchoring point of discussion, which I was thinking back watching this movie a second time. I was like, how is that even possible? Because like even something like knife and heart, which we did a whole episode around last year, we probably mentioned Jalo like a hundred times in that conversation, but never actually like picked a movie to examine in the genre. I would say that it is a Jalo film. I would, I would call knife and heart a Jalo. Although that's fair. You know, you did mention before that one of the films you watched was Spanish and therefore maybe not technically a Jalo. But I would say that Knife and Heart, despite being French, is also a Jalo. It just happens to be made in a different culture and nation. And people also like are a little wary to mention movies like Suspiria that are like supernatural horrors that just have the same like 70s Euro horror sensibility as Jalo or like made in Italy around the same time. Yeah. Like those getting lumped in with the like pulpy murder mysteries that are supposed to be the core of it. I'm not a very big like genre boundary hound. I don't really see the point in like being that pedantic about it. We'll just call them Amarillo. If it's a Spanish one, and then <laughs> if it's French, we can call it uh, uh, Jan, Jan, like the same root as Jandis, which I guess makes sense. It's the French. And sounds like Jan Gonzalez. This is true. Oh my God. Somebody, somebody call the conspiracy theory hotline. But like you said, this is like a particular favorite genre of yours, like up there with the Star Trek film. So I was a little curious why you did not like this movie, All the Colors of the Dark. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because you saw like a strange cut of it in an uncomfortable scenario. Yeah. And I honestly had forgotten that you had reviewed it for the website until I was halfway into the film. I was just watching it because it happened to be on Shutter and looked interesting. And there was a symbol in the like satanic sex cult iconography that I was like, I've drawn that before. <laughs> um, so I, I looked up your review and I was like, okay, it was under a different title. Um, you kind of talked about the venue you saw it in as well. So I kind of wanted to revisit it and just kind of loop back around. I'm glad you did. You're glad? I am. I'll, but yeah, go ahead and give your give the synopsis. So... This movie's kind of on its surface, a sleazy knockoff of Rosemary's Baby. That's like the most like reductive way you could describe it. This woman has recently suffered a miscarriage after a car crash. So she's not pregnant like Rosemary is, but she is kind of like apartment bound and sad and doesn't have a social life outside of her husband and her psychiatrist. In this case, the husband doesn't want her to see a psychiatrist. Same as the other movie. He doesn't want her to have friends or leave the house, but the movie kind of like gets the details a little mixed up and like the husband's correct. Like her leaving the house (laughs) and going to a psychiatrist and like 
socializing with her sister and with another woman in the apartment building who she kind of has a crush on that leads to trouble. It gets her involved in this like satanic sex cult that actually was the source of her trauma originally, even before the miscarriage. Cause she's been sad since she was a child when her mother was murdered by the same cult. And the movie is kind of like her piecing the mist, that mystery together. Like, Oh, these people who are stalking me and grooming me for these like satanic purposes are also the same people that killed my mother. And she doesn't know who to trust and who's behind everything. And it turns out her husband is like the one that she should be trusting and probably would have been safer off at home, not being adventurous socially. That's kind of fucked up if you think about it for too long, but that's a Jalo <laughs> film. You're not supposed to think about that. You're supposed to enjoy the way it looks and sounds. And I think this movie kind of gives me everything I want out of the genre. Like it's got this surreal dream imagery. It starts with this like psychedelic kaleidoscope imagery of like baby Jane, old women dressed as like little girls dolls yeah. and like pregnant bellies being stabbed and just like weird sexual nightmare shit. And then that kind of comes back with the cult later. And over time, it starts to take the shape where she keeps thinking that she's breaking away from the cult and that she's like free from them. And she gets sucked right back into it. And the same like Kenneth anger orgy sequence starts over again. It reminded me a lot of my favorite X-Files episode, uh, the one with the mushroom, where they keep thinking that they've gotten out of the mushroom, but they're just hallucinating and they, they're like still inside of the fungus, just like unable to escape it. So I don't know. I was kind of just surprised to hear that you did not enjoy this the first time. So I wanted to kind of revisit it with you and I want to know if it worked better for you on the revisit. Yes, it absolutely did. Would you believe that the murder of her mother is not a significant enough plot detail to be mentioned in the version that I saw. That's half the movie. (laughs) Would you be shocked (laughs) to learn that there's like seven minutes of the film left after where the version I originally saw ended. It ends with the apparent murder of her husband, Richard in the stairwell of the building in the version that I saw a couple years back which in the film proper is actually like a dream or even like premonition sequence. What? There's no mention of drugs at all. Like the fact that the cult is actually a front for um, some sort of, of drug cabal, which actually puts this film right in my perfect sweet spot now because it presents a situation in which there is a supernatural explanation for events and a rational explanation for events and comes down on the side of rationality, uh, which we have talked about before. So with this film in its entirety, not missing the, I don't know, 20% of it (laughs) that was gone in the version (laughs) that I originally saw, I thought this was great. I really enjoyed it. It was much better this time around because I got the whole experience. It kind of reminds me of um, how a few years back, or a couple years back now, uh, one of, and you know, I might have even mentioned this in my previous review because it did happen right around the same time. And right around that same time, I also acquired a butchered cut of a Bava film that was released on VHS as a hatchet for a honeymoon. 
that also was apparently missing large swaths of it. And for Terror Tuesday at the Alamo Draft House, they programmed Creepers one night, which is the original American cut of Argento's Phenomenon, which also makes no sense. This movie, for a giallo, makes a ton of sense. <laughs> Completely held together, in my opinion, now that I've seen the whole thing. <laughs> And honestly, I had a struggle the first time I watched it, maybe because I was watching it more for like the visuals than the plot, where like towards the end she had left and been like sucked back into the cult so many times. And there were so many reveals about like who was actually behind the conspiracy that I started to lose track of the logic of it. But even rewatching it the second time, I was like, oh, okay, actually all these pieces have their place. Um, and this actually does like track. And I think that scene you mentioned where they kind of reveal that these are not supernatural Satanists. Like they're just kind of like low level thugs. I thought that was like a great variation on like the psycho yeah. trope where like, like men in a, um, a clinical criminalists like sit around in a room and discuss like the psychology of the killer and like how they did their crimes. Like that scene never usually works in just like an exposition dump. But in this film, it was like, Kind of even crazier than the supernatural explanation. It's crazier, but it works from a level of uh, rationality where it is completely insane, but could happen in our real world where it's like, oh, of course, they just drugged her. Now everything makes sense. The revelation that her sister was in on it really helps. And I especially liked that like that was actually visually represented or at least foreshadowed pretty early on by like the goings on in Barbara's apartment, especially as it pertained to this one very heavily beaded lampshade that reappeared a couple of times. It was very, uh, yeah, very Mulholland drive almost with it's like, where's the lampshade at and what does it mean? Yeah. It's like pulsating green lighting coming out of this like lampshade. You have no idea what the significance of that is at first. Yeah, it's the the room itself is pulsating green like she's in like under across the street from a neon light or something. Super adorable. I think another reason that explanation works is that it doesn't make the movie less interesting. Like it doesn't make it less horrifying. The fact that it's just people playing dress up and drugging people. Yeah. And killing puppies for these rituals that don't mean anything like that makes it so much grosser and more upsetting the more you think about it and not like it doesn't deflate it in any way, you know? Yeah, completely agree. It does make it just that much worse. I also think it's kind of funny that the cut you saw is called they're coming to get you, which seems to be a joke reference to night of the living. Yeah. They're coming to get you, Barbara, but her sister's name is Barbara, right? So it's like a reference to a side character. We have to talk about, how hard this film is trying to be set in England. (laughs) It's trying really hard, even though it very clearly is not filmed there. I love the terrible London underground that they have built that is so much smaller than like the real London underground, but does look like an Italian subway station. Also like the, you know, her husband talks about like, Oh, I have to be at Oxford at 10. And it's clearly supposed to be in London. And they all have very, like, Anglican names. You know, like Barbara is... Yeah, Barbara and Richard and Jane. I don't think I've ever seen a Jalo try that hard 
to be not Italian other than when Argento did trauma in like, you know, featureless Minneapolis or wherever. When you said that my first image was her having like biscuits and tea with her friend that she kind of has a crush on. Yes. It's straight out of the love witch. Yeah. And yet of all the steps that they took, they not a single car in this movie has a driver in the right hand position. Uh, it's like it's trying so hard to set itself in england and missing some like really important huge details which kind of contributes to that weird dream logic nature of it and i think the movie does a good job too of like disorienting you with the dream stuff and the like kaleidoscopic imagery and the repetition like it's not just that she keeps getting away from the cult and it's like a hallucinated paranoia it's also like the image of someone lunging at her is repeated almost like a gif. Yeah. Like there's like a screaming lunge that goes over and over again. Oh no. Yeah. Okay. I know. It's okay. Gif. I I, I just, I have never heard it in the wild, you know, I know it's wrong, but I can't help it at this point. I've committed to a a choice. Technically the creator (laughs) says that the way that you have pronounced it as if it were peanut butter is correct, but I will hold I will hold to the fact that the G is a hard G because it stands for graphical and therefore it's GIF. But <laughs> well, one thing I thought could be fun to do together is I have pulled out the Argento index, which was what I needed to grab before we came back from break. I'm sure you recall, but for listeners who are not familiar with this, Uh, Back when I first started writing for Swamp Flicks back in 2015, I watched every film that Dario Argento had ever made, um, starting with 1970s Bird with the Crystal Plumage up through his most recent film, which was 2012's Dracula 3D, and then awarded each one a point value based on how frequently that feature appeared in multiple works. The most common... Uh, appearing in 11 of his films is Obscured Clues. And what that means in uh, Deep Red is like in that one very early on, we see the killer in a reflection, but it isn't until much, much later. It's almost subliminal. And then you see it again much, much later in a different context and realize that you had all the clues all along. Or in Suspiria, the obfuscation of the clue comes from you know, our main character arriving at the Don's Academy and seeing someone say something and not being able to actually hear it and kind of barely reading the lips and eventually being able to figure out what was actually the clue that they had missed. In opera, there are clues that are obscured because of the vision problems that the main character has as a result of the, the pins taped to the eyes thing. So I thought you and I could go through the list of Argento commonalities and then give this film, even though it is not an Argento, an Argento Codex score. What do you think? That sounds good. I'm I'm thinking maybe just because you mentioned mirrors, like, do we get a glimpse of the tattoo that tells on the sister ahead of time? So if that had been included... In the version that I originally saw, I would have known to be on the lookout for it. I don't believe that we do. So, obscured clues. I I think the tattoo is like the closest I can come up with something, but we don't really see it. The icon, yeah. You're right. All right, so let's get that. 
The protagonist is not an artist or a writer. So no. Is she just a wife? Is it like her entire personality in this? Yeah. It doesn't seem like she has a job at all. He wants her in bed having bad dreams and then showering them off. That seems like his ideal day for his wife. You know, earlier we did talk about how, I mean, she needs to rest up for whatever reason, but you're right in that he should not keep her from going to the psychiatrist because the psychiatrist is beneficial to her, but because of the psychiatrist's relationship with her sister, Barbara, who is malicious in this version, (laughs) uh, that is strange. Yeah. He's right for being overprotective, which seems like just something they didn't think through very carefully. Like they were thinking more about the surprise of who was behind the cult and less about like, Oh, that means the husband was right. Uh, Maybe you should not stress that. That's okay. I do think that we should award points for the mirror because he does a mirror is present and a reflection is important. Even if we did not see the tattoo, isn't there also a lipstick message in a mirror as well? Yes, you're right. Don't remember what was in the message. I just remember the image. It was needlessly creepy, to write a message in red lipstick on a mirror as if it as if twere blood <laughs> richard was not always I, I don't know it is strange that richard comes through as the hero in the end he is such a red herring but yeah i'll say we'll say mirrors yes uh i would say there are no totemic animals like a like a little like wooden object like an animal no where an animal is somehow totemic to a character like in the literal sense like i would i gave credit to inferno because of the countess and her cats uh phenomena because of the bugs the only animal i can recall is the puppy being sacrificed at the ritual which it's kind of a stretch yeah so we'll say no to totemic animals i the next one is traumatized murderer which i would say yes because Barbara was also traumatized by the death of their mother. Yes, successfully traumatized the way the cult wanted it, where she became a member and an active one. Yeah, so we'll say yes to that. There are no scenes in an opera house or at an opera. Uh, Police involvement. Well, we do get the uh, cops explaining that the cult members are actually just drug dealers, (laughs) not as special as they pretend to be. I'll say yeah. Uh, and then, um, obviously this doesn't have Aja in it or Daria Nicolodi, uh, photography. Is there a scene in which anybody develops film or has a film lab? No, she has no outside interest besides nightmares and showers. Okay. So So we'll say no to that. Now, what about, this is one of my favorites killed before clue giving, which is like, when a character is like, oh, I have the secret, it's in a locket, <laughs> or, oh, I know what's going on, and then they get strangled in the back seat, or a weird doll comes leaping out of a closet <laughs> to murder them. I would almost say yes with the psychiatrist and his caretakers, except none of them have figured anything out at the time of their killing. Yes, which is the exact same function that the psychiatrist in Rosemary's Baby has. He has like a clue or he's got like the answer to the whole deal, but he doesn't get to deliver the message. But I don't think that is as like clear cut in this version of that story. Yeah, no on that. Characters never get immersed in water. No. Lady protagonist. That's a yes. Big yes. Her eye makeup game in this, by the way, is so beautiful. She looks amazing. She's stunning in this movie. 
What's her name again? It's Edgewidge something? Edwidge Finnec. She's like a great example of the genre's like perfect lead, I think. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I also think that um, Ivan Razumov, who plays the killer with the weird eyes, is almost like a platonic example of like a Jalo killer. For sure. He's handsome, but like has that weird, those weird contact lenses that make him slightly otherworldly and untrustworthy. Was anyone affiliated with Goblin affiliated with this soundtrack? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Looks like it says it was Bruno Nicolai, who not seeing any crossover. Although he did do the music for Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. Which apparently also starred Edwidge Finnich, as I'm looking up on Wikipedia right now. <laughs> that is That must have been where I saw her before. Okay, so... We'll say no on Goblin. Rainy Day Murder. Is there is there a rainy day murder in this one? All the murders take place during pretty standard days, I think. There's not actually a lot of murder in this. There's a kind of one-in, one-out system where right. the cult requires anyone who wants to leave to bring in a new member. Uh, and the way that an old member gets to leave as they're killed as the new one is inducted. Yeah. Um, and then there's some cleanup murders to, you know, cover their tracks as the police get on, get on their tail, but otherwise not a lot of killings in it. Yeah. Mary gets murdered. And then the doctor and his like two elderly caretakers. And I, and that is it. So no rainy day murders, no intergenerational investigative duo, no eye violence, no characters named Anne or Anna, which is a, a huge Argento thing. <laughs> Because of his Poe obsession, pull Annabelle Lee. Uh, assault with a train. I'm going to say no. No. There's no asylum scenes. Uh, that's questionable. Okay. Because she's in her hospital room you undergoing like a right. psychological collapse. And she keeps having these like paranoid fantasies about escaping the hospital and then being like arrested by the cult. Like she has these like fantasies where the cult is. Yeah in charge of the police or in charge of hospital staff. Yeah. Also that was not in the original version that I saw. None of that. (laughs) There's nothing to do with cats. And I don't think that at any point, the main character is a suspect. Is she, or would you say yes? She is a suspect in the murder of her friend. That's right. Okay. So we'll get points on that. There's no decapitation. And this is the one this is the one that I really started thinking about the need to do this whenever it happened. It was elevator set pieces, for sure. Oh, plenty. For sure. There are so many elevator set pieces in this movie. It's great. And plenty of um, stairwell shots, uh, yeah. vertical shots up spirally staircases, which is pure Jalo oh. bullshit. Uh, which we even talked about when we did uh, Equation to an Unknown, which is a porno film that just happens to look like a Jalo. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that was like one of the things we we called out. I was like, oh yeah, that looks just like Euro horror at the time. Indeed. Vehicular Darwinism. I don't think anybody runs out into the street and is hit by a car in this one. Nobody gives or receives music lessons. <laughs> no. It happens a lot. Uh, and then I'm going to go ahead and say yes, that there are witches. Yeah. You know, they might be pretending, but they at least seem to believe it a little bit. Peepholes? Ooh, not that I can recall. There's the scene where she runs around 
She mostly observes things through her window, but there's no scene in which, even when she's running around pounding on all the doors, there's no people. So yes, uh, we'll skip that. No plane sequences. No Americans abroad. But we'll say, I will say, yes, there, a child does witness a murder in the backstory. That is the entire plot. Um, if you've watched this version and not the yeah. they're coming to get you version. And then such great heights, which is what I call um, a rooftop sequence at the end, which yep. yes, in this version, again, not in the version I originally saw. And then we'll say student protagonists know, but a traumatized protagonist prior to the story taking place. Yes. Big time. So our Argento codex score for all the colors of the dark is 67. Oh, Cata Nine Tales also has a score of 67. So this is as much an Argento film as Cata Nine Tales was. <laughs> um, so that was fun. <laughs> Which, well, that leads me kind of to my like overriding question at the end of this is like, you, okay, you can tally up even just by Argento, who I would say like him and Bava or maybe, maybe Fulci as well are like the sort of defining directors in the genre. Yes. You can tally up just by Argento's own tropes how much of a Jalo film this is. Because the genre has like certain beats. And I think this one hits a lot of them, which you've sort of proven mathematically just now. <laughs> like so I guess my question is, is this movie special in any way? Or is it just a solid example of those movies? Does it really stand out? I actually think yes, it does. Solely for what we talked about before, the fact that it hits my rationalism uh, or my skepticism versus supernatural sweet spot, which really only contains three movies now. Uh, This movie, The Boy, and Housebound are the only three films that fit into the category (laughs) of, you know, it's not clear to the audience or the main character, at least initially, whether or not they are experiencing something supernatural or something that is rational, like having a breakdown, which is what it seems like is happening for most of the film. And then it's like, is she being courted by this like weird cabal? And then no, as it turns out, there is a weird cabal, but there's a completely rational explanation for all of their activities. Yeah. This one does a good job of kind of having it both ways. It doesn't make them any, less terrifying or grotesque that they're not magic. Like the reveal that they're just a bunch of like fucked up drug addicts does not make it any less horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess my second question is kind of deflating the one I just asked, which is if you had to relate this to another Jalo film, is there like something you would compare it to? Cause I had a very clear title in my head. Well, the parallels to Rosemary's baby that you bring up are there, even though, it's not that she's pregnant. It's that she lost the baby. This is like the dream you have after watching Rosemary's baby. Like all the details are a little scrambled and off and the themes aren't quite coherent. Um, it's just like a little like off brand and mixed up, but maybe even more interesting in its details because of that. No, I can't think of anything. What's, what's your answer? Um, a lizard in a woman's skin, which was also about like sex orgies and hallucinogenic drugs. And um, have you seen that? I have not. I don't know how much you're into Fulci, but he's a great 
counterpoint to Argento, I think. I like him. Um, most of his work that I've seen is his non-shallow work, just his more straightforward horror, mostly zombies and ghouls type stuff. I would definitely recommend A Lizard in a Woman's Skin then. Um, I don't think it's as grounded as this one. I would also recommend watching sh- uh, Short Night of Glass Dolls, which I mentioned at the top of the episode. And honestly, if I had seen it a little sooner, I might have recommended that as an episode topic instead of All the Colors of the Dark. But I'm very glad we circled back here because I was just surprised watching it that you did not enjoy it. Um, and I'm glad that we could fix that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to have seen a functional cut of this film that made it a movie and not just a fever dream is incomprehensible. Because the thing is, even in its full length and with all of the footage left in, it's still a weird fever dream of a movie. But imagine imagine if like it made even less sense. You know, <laughs> That's the version that I saw. What really fucks me up about that is that at full length, it's only 87 minutes, and it goes by incredibly fast. So yeah. I don't know why they felt the need to cut anything from it. It doesn't make any sense. Unless you're trying to cram it into like a specific length on like a double bill at a drive-in. There's really no other reason to cut anything out of it. Yeah, I think this is uh, that is frequently what would happen with these. Or, you know, they would be cut down to remove, you know, certain sexual elements like they were still pretty skeezy but the americans were like oh we're not gonna we're not as skeezy as the italians you know we're not gonna let it go that (laughs) far which also seemed to happen a fair amount uh i don't know i don't there's nothing objectionable in the content that was lost in the version that i saw it's simply a matter of is it comprehensible or not and this time it was well I'm glad I did it. This feels like a uh, productive episode <laughs> in that way. Like we, we uh, rehabilitated this movie's good honor in your eyes, which as someone who appreciates Jalo as a genre, I think that's, that's good work. Thank you. Well, uh, next week we are going to talk about black horror movies in the nineties. Um, starting with tales from the hood. Oh, I did see that you had watched that. I won't be participating in that, but uh, I, you liked it. I assume. Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever seen it. I I really liked it, and I was surprised by how just grim and like politically engaged it is. I it kind of looked like a zany horror comedy anthology from the outside looking in, especially considering the wraparound. Yeah, but um, it's a really like brutal film. Every time I thought it was going into sort of like broad comedy, it always comes back to like some like genuine, heartfelt, heartbroken political engagement um which was not at all what i expected out of the movie and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it with everybody else and in the episode notes for today i will link to our movie of the month discussion of a movie that only i enjoy <laughs> it's a pro wrestling horror comedy um set in a haunted graveyard where famous monsters fight each other to the death called monster brawl it did not go over well with the crew but I'm allowed to be self-indulgent every now and then. Yeah. That was this month. I, I'm sorry. It was an evil I inflicted upon you. <laughs> I would not apologize. I, you know, I do finally feel that I like, I, I don't want to belabor this or really make you feel that bad. Cause I mean, I've definitely seen a lot worse films. This one was 
this one was mostly like when I was engaged, I was not fully engaged. And when I was not engaged with it, I was just gone. I was just could not force myself to concentrate on it when it wasn't um, like when it wasn't an introductory scene, like a character scene when it was just like the, the fighting, my eyes just glazed over, but I will say I do finally feel like I've paid my dues for forcing everyone to watch the freaky die freaky, (laughs) which no one enjoyed at all. But yeah. The funniest part of that was like before I rewatched it to like write my kind of intro part, I was like, well, you know, this is kind of a gamble. Maybe people won't like it. It's been a while. It's probably more fun to watch as a group than it is to like watch by yourself. So like, this is a bad time to do it. And then when I was actually watching it, I was like, fuck yeah, this movie is great. <laughs> So I love that you love it. I love that you love it. <laughs> I learned nothing. Um, <laughs> which is good. It's good to have a good self-indulgent moment every now and then. That was me this month. And I hope everyone out there indulges in their own cheesy, low-budget horror film that only they enjoy. Because every horror movie has some defender. Come to defend its honor. Just like every town has an Elm Street. Exactly. And we'll be back next week with more horror discussion and for the rest of the month, give or take a hurricane knocking out my power so I can't edit these together. Everybody stay safe out there. Stay spooky. And um, depending on where this goes, when this goes out, there's probably not a lot of days left for you to register to vote. But if you haven't yet, do it. Today was the last day in Texas, but other states are still registering. Make sure to do it this year. Vote like your life depends on it, because um, for a lot of people it does. Like